<laughs> is it more comfortable than the pews? <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It, this is. This is amazing. Today, we have the final Sunday that we'll be looking at the book of First Peter. And if you've been following along with us, and if you haven't, I'm going to try to catch up a bit. We've been looking at the book of First Peter because it is Peter, a, a redeemed disciple, one who totally messed up when Christ gave his all. He turned his back on Christ. And then with the empty cross, he learned a lesson that he had to share. And so we have this letter, 1 Peter, that is written to churches going through suffering and trials. And he's saying, look, learn the lesson that I learned when I gazed upon that empty cross. And so this is the final lesson, and it is most definitely the most important lesson that we can learn. It is the final encouragement, and I, I encourage you throughout this week, to read through the book of First Peter and Second Peter. They're not long. They'll take you a whole 20 minutes to read through. But to read through it again, to refresh yourself, to remind yourself during this final week. Now, this, this final lesson that Peter is teaching us is the single most important lesson we can hear, especially during this time. It is the thread that pulls everything together. Those who... Uh, Crochet, those who knit know how important that thread is. And if you pull that single thread, everything can become undone. And everything is held together by that. And this lesson today is that thread. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 14. And then we'll also be going to chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Turn there with me so that we can read this. Now, I know it's going to be a little windy, so if you actually have your Bible, hold on to your pages because uh, it's going to be blown all over the place. If you are able, at least those who are uh, out here in your car, it might be a little difficult. But if you are able, please stand with me as we read the word of the Lord in 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 14, and 5, 6 through 11. It says, Beloved do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's suffering so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Now jumping to chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand fast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kind of trials and sufferings. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And together we say, thanks be to God. 
You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us today through your word. Enlighten us with this lesson that Peter is trying to teach us and, and, and demonstrate for us what we need to learn because of that empty cross. May your Holy Spirit be upon this place that we might have hearts and minds ready to hear and obey. It is in your name we pray. Amen. For the most part, Amy and I do not let our children walk in the stores. It's not because we don't believe they're incapable of doing it. They, they are quite capable of walking. Um, they think they can do it fairly well. The, the problem comes is, is the fact of when you have a three-year-old trying to walk through mire, it doesn't work so well. It, they're kind of distracted. They, they meander a bit. Christopher, I love him. I love him. But he's a distracted walker. We had it one time where we were walking in mire, and we said, okay, well, we'll let them walk. We were just browsing. You know, Amy and I, going back to our college dating, uh, we would go to stores and just walk around because we were poor college kids, and so you, your dating was going to a store and look at stuff that you couldn't buy anyways. Uh, and so we, we have kind of kept that tradition, and we, we were walking around a mire once, and we were letting him walk, and and he's just all over the place, like, da-da-da. And now, not only does he walk terribly slow, pain, painfully slow, but he does not look where he is going. And one time, he was walking, and poof, right into a display right in the middle of the aisle. Christopher, look where you are walking. Focus, because all he's doing is, and I can't blame the guy. There's a lot going on at the store. There's a lot to look at. And he's only three. So, I mean, there's some stuff there. He needs to grow up a bit uh, with, with that as well to be able to focus. But uh, being focused is a, is a challenge for more than just toddlers, though. Being focused is much harder for all of us. And I know that those who have been working from home I, I sympathize with you because working from home is much harder than working from an office because there's a hundred more distractions to take you down every rabbit hole. You know, you, you start, you sit down at your table and then you see the dishes aren't done or you feel some grime under your feet. So you start sweeping and then sweeping leads to dusting and you start and you lose your focus. And so it becomes difficult to get the things done that you need to. What more a perfect example of humans struggling to focus than the month of January, right? The month of January, New Year's resolutions. How many of you, just quick poll, quick poll. Those of you who set a New Year's resolution this January, how many of you are still following it? Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Uh, even, uh, don't blame yourself. We as people, we, we struggle with this because we lose our focus. We lose our targets, and then we slowly begin to drift. Amy and I, we struggled with this. Back, it wasn't this past January, but it was actually in uh, February of two years ago. We said, okay, we're going to get really strict about our diet. We're going to change our eating habits, and we're going to try to eat healthier. We're not going to consume any extra sugar or any of that. And we did really well, actually. We made it all the way to December. 
and then one chocolate chip turns into a handful of chocolate chips, which turn into a cookie, which turns into two dozen cookies, which then turns into eating a gallon of ice cream. It just happens, and, and, and it's hard because you slowly drift if you don't stay focused. The challenge for us today, church, is the same that Peter is writing to his churches here in 1 Peter. He's trying to help them to stay focused, to keep their faith focused on Christ alone. Now, of course, that is a simple statement to say, much harder to live out and apply within our lives. And so we must work at it. And it's probably one of the hardest things we will ever work at every single day of our lives. You see, it's easy for the church to become distracted with many different issues and eventually lose focus on what keeps us going. One of the greatest examples of this is if you read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation starts out with letters to seven churches, and most of those churches get a slap on the wrist because they've lost their focus. And we too, church, all churches around the world can lose their focus so easily because suddenly they decide to replace the carpet in the sanctuary and then it becomes a big argument about what kind of color to replace the carpet with or what kind of color to paint the walls or the landscaping. You know, uh, it's looking kind of shabby around here. And so then they start to do that, but then they get all hung up on what they need to do. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about our building. We should. We should care about our facility. We should take care of it because it is an investment that people over years have poured into. But if a church splits because of carpets, they've lost their focus. If a church splits because they can't decide if they want a shrub there or a tree there, they've lost their focus. And sadly, I know more churches than what I'd like that have done just that. We must keep our focus on Christ. And unfortunately, with things like this virus, the flooding, the fires, all of this has kind of caused people to even more turn their gaze away from God and to look at all the worries that they have surrounding them. And so the lesson today, it is pertinent for us to apply to our hearts, especially as we begin to look towards next week. Next week is a very special week. Do you know what next week is? Next week is Pentecost the day we celebrate the church being commissioned and sent out to the day that the Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire upon the apostles. The day where Peter stood up and preached and 3,000 came to Christ, or 5,000, 3,000. 3, I, I can't remember the exact number. It's a lot of people. And so it's a great day to celebrate. It's the birth of the church. And so let us see then what this lesson is that Peter is teaching us as we prepare our hearts for not only this week, but for the future of our church post-COVID-19. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you were to substitute the word treasure with the word focus, you would pretty much be on to the root of the issue. Although I'm sure you could make the argument that where your focus is, that's also where you're putting your treasure. So either word probably would work within that context. Where your focus is, there your heart will be also. 
Setting your focus on the right thing will allow you to go the distance. It will keep you on the right path. Now, there's a reason Peter continuously throughout his book is repeating the same idea over and over and over and over again. It's not because he has Alzheimer's and he forgets what he said. And it's not because he just likes to ramble. It's because we need to hear it over and over and over again so that we retain our focus on what is important. We are not supposed to be worried about the trials that we are facing, nor are we supposed to be focused on the hardships that are presently pushing upon us. Rather, we are to keep our focus on Christ and the shared inheritance we have with him. Now, I've learned over many years of mowing the grass that if you let your eyes drift a bit, your lines in your yard are going to start looking like this. You have to look at the end of the row. And if you look at the end of the row, then your line's going to be nice and straight. But if you look right in front of the mower, you're going to be weaving all over the place. And the same is true if you talk to any farmer. When they plow the fields to get ready, they're not looking where their tractor is heading right in front of them. They're looking all the way down at the end. They're focused at the end because that's the only way they can have a nice straight line. And the same works true within our spiritual lives. If we focus on the present troubles, if we, if we have our eyes set on what's happening just right in front of us, we're going to start swerving. We're going to start weaving it back and forth because we don't like pain. And trials are painful. And so then we're going to start trying to go this way or that way. We're going to try changing this or that about our lives. And soon our lives are going to be all out of control every which way. Instead, we do as Peter tells us, and we set our focus on Christ and the Christ's glory that will be revealed. We look towards the end of every hardship, the end of every trial, at the very end when Christ will be revealed as king over all. And we keep our gaze set on that, and that keeps us going straight. And it is a matter of when these trials happen. It's, it's not if. I, I, I hope you realize that by now. Many of you have lived well long into your, your life that you understand that trials are not a matter of if you happen to have hardships. It's a matter of when they come. They will come. They will continue to come. They will always be present within our lives. It is just like taxes. They always come. No matter how much you like them or not. Now, it should be expected, but even celebrated when we do suffer for Christ, though. Because that means that we are on the right path. It tells us that we are doing the right thing when we suffer. If you meet anyone who claims to be a Christian and has found favor with the world, run. Because we cannot believe that as Christians, we continuously become like Christ and we somehow have favor with the world, that we are somehow loved by the world because Christ was rejected by the world. Christ was beaten and bruised and killed by the world. And so if we are to become more and more like him, we should not expect anything less than suffering the same way that he suffered. So if you have anyone who says, I'm a Christian, but the world seems to love them, I would be suspicious. Because to be like Christ means to be rejected and despised by the world. 
because they're polar opposites. So then, how do we set our focus on Christ? How do we keep our eyes on the future glory and not be led astray? Well, we set a rule. We set up a rule of life. Now, that's a quite old term, and I'm going to explain that in just a second. But we, we set up a rule of life, and this has become fairly unpopular over the years because of what it kind of means. Yet Peter is quite clear with us that if we want to have the same kind of faith that Christ has and that he desires for us, we must partake of the necessary steps. And so these steps, you know some of them. That's why we have a manual for the church of the Nazarene. That's why the church board writes up a policy by which this local church will function. There are rules and guidelines to help us know how to address certain situations. And it is why you also should have a rule of life. Now, a rule of life is is a set of guidelines that help you focus your efforts in the right direction. Now, the reason this has fallen out of style is because our culture does not like overly obtrusive rules. We do not like to hear, hey, you should not do this. You can't do that. That is not good for you. Our culture doesn't like that because they feel that it's arbitrary. And that somehow, if you follow a set of rules within your lives, you become legalistic. But, in actuality, when you have a rule of life within yourself, you actually become freed to do more than what you could if you didn't. Now, that's a paradox for many. But let me explain that. And actually, I'm not going to explain it. I have someone else who explained it much better than me because he's much wiser. Father Cassian, a Benedictine monk who follows a strict rule of life, says this about the paradox. If you have a field covered with water because of poor drainage, he explains, crops either won't grow there or they will rot. If you don't drain it, you will have a swamp and disease. But if you can dig a drainage channel, the field will become healthy and useful. What's more, once the water becomes contained within the walls of the channel, it will flow with force and can accomplish things. The water that he is talking about is is our free will, our ability to do things. And he's saying if you just let it go all willy-nilly in a field, everything that you want to produce, the crops, they, they won't grow. They will rot or they won't even sprout because there will be just too much water. But if you dig a channel, you set this rule of life by which things, your will, the water can flow, then all of a sudden that can be used to do more. You'll have a healthy crop and you can use all that energy in a direction that actually has purpose and power. So now many of you might be thinking, to yourselves, that Peter isn't necessarily telling us to do that here, so why is Pastor telling us that we need to start setting up these rules for our lives? If you think that, think again. Look at 1 Peter, uh, verses 6 and 8 again. Look at this. He has three distinct rules that he's asking you to do. Humble yourselves. Why? So that you might be under, uh, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves and keep alert. 
like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around you looking for someone to devour. Three very simple rules of life. Humble yourselves before God. Cast all your anxieties on him. And discipline yourselves and keep alert. Why? Because by doing that, we can be in line with God's will. We don't have to worry and we protect ourselves from falling to the temptation of the evil one. Fairly simple. A rule of life allows us to humble ourselves so that we do not have to be swayed with anxiety, to worry, and it disciplines ourselves so that we might actually resist the devil when he tempts us. This is huge. And that is what having a focused faith looks like. It is disciplining our lives to conform to the God's way of life. So that when trials come, we actually have a habit already formed so we know what we need to do. Ben does not run marathons just because one day he woke up and said, Hey, I'm going to go run 10 miles. And, and, and he didn't do it very successfully, I'm sure. He had to discipline himself. I'm sure he runs a lot, doesn't he, Matt? He runs a lot, and he has to continue to run. He has to build a habit of running in order to get to the point where he can run those marathons and not look like what I would look like, collapsed on the ground 20 miles ago. You develop a habit. In school, you develop a habit of studying. Isn't that right, Jessica? You try to develop a habit of studying. <laughs> all, all the teens that are still here, all the children, you know you have to develop a habit of studying in order to be successful in school. In the same way in our lives, we have to develop these spiritual habits. We can't wait until the time of sorrow and worry and temptation comes to say, okay, I need to get into God's word and I need to start reading. Because do you know how hard it is to daily commit yourself to reading to God's word so that you hear the Holy Spirit speak to you? Yes, you can read it. But to actually read it and glean something from it, it takes daily work. You can't wait until your house is flooded to say, okay, I'm going to start getting on my knees every day and praying before God. Because at that point, your body is so taxed with anxiety and worry that you won't have the strength to do it. Those in the military, those who have served, know the daily habits that they put, the, the things that you do every single day to build the muscle memory, to build the habit, so that when the time comes, you instinctively know what to do and how to do it without having to think. In the same way, we need to have these spiritual habits. Because when those trials come, when temptation arises, we need to be able to just instantly kick into what we are called to do, not have to stop and say, God, I don't know, I, I don't know what to do anymore. I, I don't know how to start this. I don't, it's too late by then. Now, Peter, he is quick to finalize his lessons at this end of his book with the churches. He reminds them of one thing, their eternal hope. Focusing our faith in Christ is this balancing act between the work that we do and the work that God does in us. And there is a reality that we have to work hard in order to affirm our commitment and trust in God. 
That is, after all, what Peter means when he says, have steadfast faith. We are actually doing work that affirms our commitment and trust in God. But we cannot assume that, our, that that role relies solely on us either. That would be foolish to think that everything dealing with God relies on us doing the work. It's a relationship. And like any relationship, both parties are accountable for work. And I would argue that God's role in the relationship is vastly more important and vastly needed more than what we ever do. But we still have to do something. We must work to develop our faith by putting into these spiritual disciplines into our lives. But that is only made possible. The only reason we have to do it, the only way we can do it, is because of this eternal hope that we have from God. I don't care who you are. Facing sufferings and trials is a surefire way to be burned out and disheartened. I'm sure we can all sympathize with that over these past couple of months. But when God tells us that he himself will restore, support, strengthen, and establish you, there's nothing more encouraging than those words. When God says, I got you. I have your back. I will support you. I will restore you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to establish you. What more do we need? Church, we must revitalize our eternal hope. In this time of despair and worry, there is nothing people need to hear more than that God has it all under control. We have eternal hope promised by God himself, given to us so that we might be empowered to focus on strengthening our faith. Have you told someone about the eternal hope that God has given you? Have you lived out your life this past week in such a way that might demonstrate this eternal hope to someone? The one thing we have to offer, the one promise we have that is better than any stimulus check or, or free food program is that God will restore and support and strengthen and establish us through every single trial of this life. No government or organization can promise that. They can't say, hey, we got you 100%. We're going to make everything 100% better. But God can. And we, as his ambassadors, as his representatives of his kingdom, have the ability to point others to that eternal hope. Not only is this hope the reason we should constantly be working towards a more focused faith in Christ, but is also the way in which we can have the focused faith in Christ. So let us hold fast to this hope. These past few weeks have only been a highlight of the possible lessons that we can glean from the empty cross. There are so many more lessons we can learn. There will always be more lessons that we can learn. And we should never stop trying to pursue them. And the way we can do that is by focusing our faith in Christ. 
to the point where we live and breathe within his kingdom every single day. By keeping our eyes and minds set on the end, by looking towards the point in which Christ will be glorified so we aren't distracted, so our lines of life don't go all crazy wampus on us. And we continue to just look for our faith through the things that we do, our, our habits that we build, our prayer and reading, our fellowship, which I know has been difficult in this time. We build these habits so that when these trials come, we can stand firm. Instead of constricting us, these habits, they will free us to move with purpose and power. And most importantly, we cannot forget this eternal hope. The very promise that God has got our backs. We need that so we can be encouraged to keep going. We live in a time where trials will continue to increase. That is a fact. There will be more ways in which we will not fit into our societies. And the closer we draw to our risen Savior, the further we will depart from the desires of this world, which will only make us stand out more. And that will only increase our trials. But we have nothing to fear. No matter the fiery ordeal we are facing or will face, God is with us. So may we keep our faith focused on Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you tell us within your word that you are taking care of us. That you are with us. That you are going to support us and sustain us. Thank you, Father, that we have this eternal hope to keep going. So restore us now. Support us now. Strengthen us now. Establish us now. And help us to use this power that you have given us to build within our lives these spiritual habits. So that when trials continue to come, we might stand firm. We might know what it is we must do without a second thought. Oh, Lord. Please help us to keep our eyes set, not on the, the hardships we face, but on Christ and his glory. May we develop a faith that is focused on you alone. As we close with the benediction, I encourage you to turn your hands towards heaven to receive the blessing of God. O oh God of glory, your son Jesus Christ suffered for us and ascended to your right hand. Unite us with Christ and each other in suffering and in joy that all your children may be drawn into your bountiful dwelling. Amen. I now send you, church, out into your communities to make Christ-like disciples. Go in the grace of God. And how wonderful it is to just be with you. 
God bless you, church.